Tēnā I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. Owen Marshall is a celebrated New Zealand writer. Often referred to as one of this country's best short story writers, Owen is also a novelist and poet. He's been awarded many of the top literary fellowships and honours available to New Zealand writers and was the New Zealand Society of Authors President of Honour in 2007. Owen's father was a Methodist minister who loved literature and Owen's childhood home was full of books. In 2015, Owen spoke with Deborah Shepherd, who asked him about the books he enjoyed as a child. I don't remember being given a book, no, but, but there were a lot of books in the house and also I, I quite early remember going regularly to the library. The first book that I can remember reading um, was Baba the Elephant. Um, and then I must have been very small then and then a, a few years later I can remember it being interested in the William books Richmond Crompton's books of William and his, his group I, I, I remember enjoying those as a child Until you found out that the author was a woman Well that's right, <laughs> a sort of ambiguous name and I, yes, it's, uh, it, shouldn't have, it shouldn't have made any difference but it did, I <laughs> thought, well, you know how how could she know about boys and how they feel and so on? Yeah, it's a rather sexist reaction, which I'm ashamed of. In now. which, of course, you would have to be. This is something you've had to be able to do in being a writer. To mm. you have to imagine your way into you the do. mind you of a woman. Move, yes, you have to move off your own base of gender and uh, and background and so on. Mm. How do you do that? How did you imagine your way mm. into um, Connie's mind in the Larnax? Well, as you say, that is very much an acquired skill. Um, One of the ways, I suppose, is to read as much as you can. In that case, it's a historical personage. Read as much as you can about that person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But secondly, I suppose, it's it's an imaginative jump and it comes from your experience and and contact with women in general Mm -hmm. to their their attitudes, to their Mm -hmm. world, to their language. And so you try to create a voice which is credible from that. And of course, in your own immediate family, you have a wife and two daughters. So yes. You're, you're surrounded by the feminine. Yes. Um, yeah. No no boys, but that, mm. no sons, but that hasn't worried me. I have two lovely daughters and mm. they've been a blessing to us. Mm. Um, yes, I suppose some people said that my early writing was rather masculinist. I, I didn't have any sisters approaching my own age. Mm. I went to a boys' school, I taught at a boys' school, I mm-hmm. played a lot of sport with men, I was in the, did national service yes. and, uh, and, and was an officer in the Territorial Army. So a lot of my early experience was, was with boys and men. Yeah. And no wonder that that was reflected both consciously and unconsciously in my early writing. And but as also, I say, once you were reading male writers mostly, weren't mostly, you? Mostly, yes, mostly, although um, there were, you know... You um, came upon Virginia Woolf? Yeah, Virginia Woolf I enjoyed um, very much, and, and more recently people like Alice Munro and Elizabeth Bowen and 
Pat Barkin and so on. Mm. But, but yes, early influences were probably mainly male writers. Mm. Um, but as I say, later in life, when, when, I, when I was fortunate enough to marry the right woman and had two lovely daughters and female colleagues at, uh, at university in particular and, and socially, I think I was able to broaden uh, the scope of characterisation that I used uh, in my writing. Um, shall we talk about the beginnings of um, the, the earlier works before the writing really took off now? Because there was, there was one that you only got a little way with it and you, and you gave up. You... Yes, I, I was pretty busy at Varsity until towards the end. The, when I'd finished my degree, I had a year at training college and the pressure was off there a bit, and I can remember starting, attempting a, a novel then, and and realizing that it wasn't working, and that the, you know being appalled by the by the lack of quality and sort of giving up on it. Mm. Uh, and then um, when I went teaching after that, initially to Waitaki Boys High School in Omaru, mm-hmm. um, I I wrote another novel, and. Uh, uh, was this was this the one called Higher Education? Yes, yes. And, and you sent it to Reeds, to read, and they turned it down. They t- turned it down. I, I got a very long, pleasant, encouraging letter from Arnold Wall, um, saying all sorts of nice things and recognizing, or saying he recognized virtues in it, but ultimately saying he couldn't publish it. But it was a I, looking, you know, thinking about it. It, it was a it was a very sensitive letter and a lengthy letter and a very kindly letter. And uh, so he was obviously saw he was a young person sort of struggling and wanted to give encouragement, mm. even though he couldn't uh, accept the novel. Mm. So did you find it encouraging, or, did, or was it the no was the thing that you sought? Um, I did find it encouraging, but of course I was disappointed and, mm. and downcast. And he. He said, you know, drop in and see me sometime and so on. I'm, I presume he was in Wellington at that stage, but, but I never did. Mm. I, I, mm. I felt I didn't want to approach him. Mm. Then you wrote another one. Um, was this one, uh, did you describe it as being about the moral duality of rural life? Was that that one? Yes, I wrote another one, uh, a better novel, mm. dealing with... A sort of a, an ageing school teacher. Uh, and I sent that off, and I, th- I think there was a, a, a sort of a competition concerned uh, with uh, Auckland Centenary or something like that, and I sent it off, and at any rate, it didn't, it, it didn't get uh, accepted or, or um, recognition there. So I then decided, well, I can't afford to be spending so much time on a novel, so that's when I decided that I would start writing short fiction. How much time had you spent on that one? Well, I can't honestly remember, but but you know, when you're busy teaching, yes. it's got to be fitted into holiday time, mm. weekend time, after school time, um, and uh, you know, a teaching life is a busy life, mm. so I, do, I couldn't really commit uh, to another novel. Mm. What was it that made you want to be a writer? I think it was it was because of of my fascination as a reader. 
I think this is where writers come from. They come from the world of books as readers mm. and they want to make that second step. Mm. They've had the satisfaction of reading and now they want to see whether they can have the further satisfaction of actually writing. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, I realise the, 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 the joy uh, and intellectual satisfaction, as I've mentioned, that my father had mm. from books and uh, I grew up in a bookish Yes. family and, and I, you had I a wanted... father writing sermons every week yes, too. he was writing yes. you'd see he was sitting writing, writing and, his and also desk. he wrote stories and poems and had he had some poetry published so the first publication was um ascent of the flugelhorn um no the no? <clears throat> after i decided to um work on short fiction I, expla- I, please can you just explain well, in fact, can I quote that what you wrote? Sure, sure. I was in my early 30s and still had published nothing. I was aware of an episodic quality in my work, aware that what vision I possessed suited the compression of the tableau rather than narrative drive and plot. I was not prepared to risk again the investment of time that a novel requires from a part-time writer. I decided to write short stories and to follow my own inclination and judgment in their language and theme. Yes. Well, the first stories, I, I began sending off to the little literary um, journals and magazines that were around, and, and, and often they only lasted a few years, little ones like More Pork and Pilgrims and so on, rather than the, in, and then there were, of course, the more enduring ones like Landfall and Island. Yeah. So I can't, I can't remember exactly which story in which magazine, but I started to have... Uh, stories accepted in those small literary magazines. Mm. I do remember, however, the, a bit of a breakthrough with having a first story published in Listener, yes. which was a different readership, which was a national readership mm. and not just a small group of sort of literary enthusiasts who read the, the small literary magazines. And uh, that, was, that story was called Descent from the Flugelhorn. Right. And uh, it was... Um, it was published, I think, in 1977. So, and that was Tony Reid at The Listener. Yes, yes, Tony Reid was editor at that, that stage. And uh, I certainly remember the considerable satisfaction of, of appearing in, in The Listener. Mm. Uh, that was quite special, wasn't it? That for quite a long period, they published New Zealand writers, their short stories and poems. Yes, at that stage they, they put whole stories in quite regularly every sort of uh, two or three weeks in, in that large format listener that they had then. And um, the listener was very supportive of my work in the 70s and the 80s and my stories regularly appeared in that. And that, that, that was really a, a, a bit of a breakthrough for me to, to have work regularly appearing in the, in the listener. Yes. And from there I was able to contemplate perhaps uh, getting a collection of those stories and others mm-hmm. um, and putting them in, the, putting them, uh, in, a, in an anthology. Can you tell the story of that very first book that that you published? Um, Supper Waltz Wilson, yes. it's called, yes. And uh, I, I decided that I would subsidise Vanity Press, if you like. Well, the press wasn't, but I, I, I subsidised that because I thought, well, um, the years were rolling on and the sooner that I was able to get a collection out, uh, the better. What so, age were you by now? Um, well, I was in my 30s then. This, this is 
19, we're talking 1978 or so, aren't we? Yes. So, yes, I was well into my 30s and still hadn't had a, a book out. Uh, and so that came out from, from Caxton Press. And um, in its own small way, it was, it was well received and well reviewed. You financed it, which is... Yes. Is, yeah. that, is that quite unusual for, uh, for the time? Well, I don't know. I don't know way? what other people were doing, but I, but I thought I had to sort of jump start a little bit to, yes. to, get, something, to get something out there. Uh, and I, I, didn't, I didn't regret it. The book was, uh, was well produced and, as I say, was, was um, well received. In particular, um, Frank Sargison gave it a very, uh, a very good review in, in the Islands magazine. And I think That's perhaps perfect. partly as a, as a result of that, I, I was successful in an application for the Canterbury University Writer-in-Residence right. that I went in 1981. Yes. Uh, so that's really when, when my writing career started to pick up a yes. bit. Yes, yeah. It must have been quite special to get that review from Frank Sargison. Yes, and when I was when I was at the university, we had a brief exchange and mm. um, uh, of letters, mm. um, one of which which I have framed in my in my study. Mm. I didn't realise at the time, but he was actually ill, and he died not so long afterwards. And I've I've, I've remarked before that how generous of him to mm. be concerned with a virtually unknown writer. Um, uh, when he, you know, when he was very sick himself and had uh, is issues of his own to be concerned with. Oh, that's very special. Mm. And he recognised yeah, your talent. A, a very, I think, typical of <coughs> Frank Sargeson. As I never met him, but reading what others have said, Kevin Ireland and others, I think he was very, very generous uh, towards uh, other writers and very encouraging. One of the great things about Frank Sargeson is that that. He was one of the first to accustom New Zealand readers to hearing the New Zealand voice. Mm. And for a long time he got opposition. People mm -hmm. thought, well, writing was done overseas and it would have an English flavour or an American flavour, whatever. And unlike Catherine Mansfield, who, who left New Zealand to, to write overseas and make a name overseas, he stayed here. Uh, and uh, used uh, the New Zealand idiom and the New Zealand voice and the New Zealand character in his work and, um, and laid a, a strong base. So, mm. Mm. Uh, and as I mentioned, there was also that, that encouraging aspect and supportive aspect mm. to people, mm, Kevin Island, Janet Frame, who, mm. that he uh, encouraged. They both lived in the so-called army hut for a while, didn't they? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and Janet Frame... Um, I suppose I'm particularly interested in her because of her Omaru connections, but she's a very, very important writer, a very, very unique writer. Mm -hmm. How many people have been able to go, if you like, to the dark side of, of emotional problems and disturbances she has mm -hmm. and, and come back mm -hmm. to tell the story? Yes. Um, so I think both of those very important writers in, in New Zealand literature. Yeah. And Omaru, Waimaru as she sometimes called it, um, very much appears in her life and in her writing and was also important in mine. Mm. And uh, 
One of the last things I did before leaving Omru in 1986 was to go to Willow Glen uh, and visit the derelict home there. Um, Not the one that's the the home that you can visit. That's the Eden no, Street home. No, that's the Eden it? Street one yes. where she spent her childhood and then the family moved to, um, to Willow Glen and she wrote about that. She wrote about her father shoveling coal as a train went past to the to the side of the track and the family would go and collect it for themselves and so on. Uh, and her brother uh, lived close to, uh, close at Willow Glen for some time. So all those, all those Omru associations were, were very recognisable for me. Mm. And I just think, you know, the, particularly the early novels, I must admit mm. I've, I've, her later novels became quite difficult and mm-hmm. quite inward looking. But I think you know, Owls Do Cry, yeah. Faces in the Water, um, and, and the, the short stories. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. writing. And then the and, autobiography. And the autobiography, as well. very much so, mm-hmm. yes. I think for a lot of people who had found difficulty with the fiction, um, really enjoyed the, the biographies. Mm. I, uh, I met her twice. Um, Yes. Once, once at the reunion of Burns Fellows and had a bit of a discussion with her and also she very kindly autographed one of her, one of her books for me which I have so, and she, we talked a little bit about writing but mm. I, I wish I'd um, got to know her a little better but, but she was a very private person. Sure. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining. Along with being a celebrated writer, Owen Marshall devised and tutored the course in fiction writing at Oraki Polytechnic. He's also taught a master class in fiction at Canterbury University. In their 2015 interview, Deborah Shepherd asked Owen about how he balanced this dual work of writing and teaching writing. Well, I've spent a lot of my life um, being a teacher, and mm. um, much of that I've enjoyed. And although time is precious for a full-time writer, I've, I've enjoyed some continuation of, of the teaching at tertiary level, um, as you mentioned at Aoraki Polytechnic in, in Timaru and then more recently at Canterbury University. Uh, and I find that interaction uh, very helpful, particularly with the, the, the younger people in some of those groups who challenge my reading record Mm-hmm. Uh, who 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 challenge my ideas, uh, and it's invigorating and it's healthy. I think to yes. have that collegial aspect. 
Because you have to stay current when you're teaching, don't you? You do. You do indeed. Yes. And uh, I, I think that it pushes uh, you to mm, research. It, it, it and does, and and to read perhaps some of the things that you wouldn't normally read. Mm. Uh, and some of your sort of established values get challenged as well. Um, and it's interesting that most of those creative writing classes actually have quite a mix um, of of age groups. You you don't only get the the um, undergraduates at, at 20 and so on, but you also get postgraduate mature students who uh, are wanting to write. And so you often get quite a nice mix of personalities and, and age groups. Uh, and I've enjoyed that. How do you structure your courses? Well, I, one of the things which I'm very keen on in terms of the uh, writing classes are workshops. I think that's so valuable. So there's a certain amount of lecturing, but more important, I think, is to be looking at the students' work because one of the things that I think writers, particularly beginning writers, lack is an, a, an audience, an immediate audience who can who can give feedback on their work, mm. and an an audience of some capability who are writers, keen readers, and so on, and um, writing classes uh, provide that opportunity where the work is submitted, everyone reads it, they think about it, and then they gather around and and discuss it. Yes. And I think that's probably the most valuable aspect of any writing course is mm. the, is the workshop aspect. Mm. And this was something that wasn't around when you were starting out as a writer. It's a more recent phenomenon, isn't it? The um, the, the Bill Manhire course here in Wellington and it, all, all around the mm. country now. Mm. That's and right. What yes. do you think about the advantages, disadvantages of creative writing uh, schools well, in general? Mm. Well, uh, some, some people have been dismissive of, of writing classes and they claim it's simply a means of providing income for those people who are running them, the impoverished writers. The, the, the tutors are not claiming to create writers. You know, people say writers are born and not made, and I think to, many, to, to extent, a large extent that's true, but more are born than many people realise, and the writing classes can accelerate their progress, and it can give them a collegial confidence mm. and so on. So rather than sitting in the garret and reinventing the wheel, mm. if you like, uh, that they, let's talk about, the uh, tutor might say, let's talk about handling time in fiction. And so there's an acceleration of skills and also, as I say, the workshops provide an examination of the work and the mm. valuable feedback. So I think people advance their, their writing. If they have innate ability, the, the, in many cases the, the writing classes can advance their mm. skills and abilities and also give, give them the, the feeling that they're not alone in the world, that there are other people who value writing and reading and so on. Mm. It doesn't suit every personality. I don't imagine, for example, that, that Janet Frame would have been an ideal candidate for a writing class, mm. but for, for for most people, I think it uh, it is it is conducive and and good value. Mm. So, as well as the teaching, you've edited collections of short stories, been the recipient of many awards and residencies: the New Zealand Pen, Lillian Ida Smith, the American Express Short Story Award, the University of Canterbury Literary Fellowship, the Burns Fellowship, the Monton Fellowship, a residency in Nelson, the Antarctica Arts Fellowship an Arts Council Award for Achievement, 
you were an in, in the inaugural recipient in 2003 of the Creative New Zealand Writers Fellowship, the Henderson Arts Residency in Alexandra, and now the Randall Cottage mm. in Wellington. You've been a finalist in the Watties. Watty Book Awards, won the Deutz Medal for Fiction in the Montana Book Awards, long-listed with the Larnix for the, what does that stand for? IMPAC, Dublin Literary Award, IMPAC? It's, is it international? It's, yes, it's the, it's the International Dublin Literary Book Awards, mm. and, uh, which is quite, quite prestigious. Mm. You've been made an Officer of Merit for Services to Literature. You've been awarded an Honorary Doctorate from the University of Canterbury and been appointed an Adjunct Professor, which means that you teach there occasionally through the year. Yes, it, 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 it just means that that's my academic status, if you like, when I do teach at right. the university, but I'm not a tenured member right. of the varsity and, uh, and I'm only there occasionally. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you've given numerous talks, radio interviews, been on panels and seminars, delivered the Janet Frame Memorial Lecture, travelled overseas to Paris, to Monton, Norfolk Island, all, all, all places to talk about writing. So it's, ve- it's very impressive what you've done, having started seriously mm. l- later in life too. And I asked you then, where does the work ethic um and the motivation derived from? What's the force that impels you to create? Well, perhaps if I could just respond uh, first by saying I'm very grateful for the sort of support that I've received at these various residencies and grants and and Creative New Zealand um, um, grants and so on. Mm. There's there's not a lot of writing for, there's not a lot of money, sorry, in Mm. writing for for most um, New Zealand writers. The, the, um, the market is small in New Zealand. It's difficult to penetrate overseas. Uh, I've had a lot of short stories published overseas, but only one novel. Often, often uh, the New Zealand writer um, needs the sort of support that, uh, that, that you've mentioned that is, and that is, is available. And uh, it seems to me also that this, the, the recognition and the support I regard as a, an incentive to further progress rather than a reward, that it's something mm. that encourages the writer to be resilient, you give a pat on the back, um, good on you, keep going, and we all need that sort of encouragement, I think, from time to time, whether it's, it's material or financial encouragement or whether it's critical encouragement and so on. Then you mentioned about the um, the work habits and the resilience. Well, if if you want to be a writer, I think you do have to be disciplined. Uh, writing takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of concentration. I don't think you're going to succeed in the long run unless you do have a, a, a disciplined attitude to to the task that you set yourself, as well as the imaginative, if you like, or the magical aspect of writing where inspiration strikes. There's the craft aspect of it, where it's just a matter of sitting there, doing the job, honing your skills, improving uh, your ability uh, at the task. Just, just as for a sports person, for example, they're out there on the practice ground, aren't they? We, we watch the tennis on the television, 
uh, we, we um, see Theodore make an amazing backhand down the line and we know, particularly those of us that have played sport, that there's been hours and hours and hours mm. of practice, mm. dedicated practice, so that there has that one moment of, of wonderful fluid mm. skill. Well, it's, it's a bit the same in intellectual pursuits. Mm. It's a matter of developing the skills and honing your skills, putting the time in um, so that, so that you, you, you're able to achieve a reasonable standard in your writing. Do you think you have to have patience mm. too? Because it can uh, take a long mm. time. Uh, it, it, can, it does take a long time. And, and I've seen in my writing classes some very capable people who, once they've realised what a laborious process it is, they've given up and said, well, I, I can make a lot more money more easily than this. People pick up a magazine, they read a story in six or seven minutes uh, or ten minutes, they don't realise it might have taken two or three weeks' yes. work. Uh, it is to, for most of us anyway, maybe there are some people of superlative talent who toss these things off, but for most of us, it is a labour of love mm. as well as a, a vocation. Uh, How do you, what happens when you're writing, mm. your, your process? And do you just work on one project at a time or have you juggled? Well, well, that's an interesting point. If I'm writing short fiction, I sometimes have a couple of stories going what I sometimes call my sad story and my happy story. So I wake up in the morning and decide how I feel uh, and pull A out of the drawer or B out of the drawer. If I'm writing a novel, uh, then I don't have anything else on the go normally as far as creative work is concerned because I feel this, that, that a novel is a, a very daunting task and I need to develop some momentum, particularly for that, that um, first draft. Uh, and so um, I'm very much sort of nose down with, with the one task. I think if, if you allow the novel to lose momentum, then I think it can quite easily stall. That's my, uh, my um, experience at any rate. Have you had any that have stalled? <clears throat> I've had one more, quite recently. I, I decided that I would write a, a novel concerned with alcoholism. Thankfully, not something I've suffered myself. But I've, you see the effect of it, often, often with highly talented people. And I thought, well, you know, this, this could well be, make a really good novel. It role. would. But um, I, it, didn't, it didn't work for me and it did stall and I had to give up on it. That's the only time I think that uh, as far as a novel is concerned, I've had to give, it, give up on the, on the idea. Why do you think it stalled? Perhaps because I didn't know enough about it, having, having, not having an addictive personality. Um, I did a certain amount of research mm -hmm. and I knew people who had problems with alcoholism. It, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get it to, to come together sufficiently mm -hmm. strongly, mm -hmm. so I had to let it go rather reluctantly. But as, as for my um, writing regime, mm -hmm. I'm probably not as disciplined now as I used to be, but, but for me the mornings are the best time. If I was working um, on new work, I would try to get to the computer um, and by I, what time of day by not particularly early by nine often I'd have a walk before I started work and um, Hemingway's aim of new work was a thousand words a day so it was good enough for Hemingway it was good enough for me I usually failed both in quality and quantity and if I got seven or eight hundred words done I was reasonably happy with myself for, for, for new work 
And it is a matter often of keeping yourself there and saying, well, I'm not going to go and see whether the, the letters posts arrived or I'm not going to go and have a cup of coffee yet. I'm going to get another 200 words done, 300 words done, whatever. Um, Are you quite hard on yourself? Like, uh, some, <laughs> a couple of times I've seen you say something like the, how all the work can twist on you and, and how mm. it's never quite what you hoped it would be. No, well, it, well, I think in... But your writing is superb. Well, Do you it's not, let it's, yourself have that, that? Well, I think for most people, they, they, they fall short of, of the target. That, you know, it's, the work's not quite what you hoped for. You always set yourself a high standard and you hope that this story or this novel is going to achieve that. And, and in my experience, um, it doesn't. But you do the best you can. You do a lot of revision and, 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 and thinking about it. And you hope that at least it reaches a standard that you can stand by it and say, well, I'm prepared to acknowledge this as my work and put it out and see whether it can find a home. But yes, I think most of us, our ambitions outrun our ability to, to achieve them. I w I'll just backtrack slightly mm. to say that one of the th good pieces of advice I found was, was not, to, not to work right through to the end of the ideas that you had, but to stop uh, so that when you came to the desk the next day, you had the tail of something to grip onto. Whereas if you wrote yourself right out for the day with all the ideas you had, then sometimes it was a bit difficult to get yourself started again. When do you edit? Um, I generally get the, the wait till the draft is done. So with a novel, for example, I won't be doing serious revision until perhaps months or uh, on. Uh, and then, of course, that becomes a whole process in itself, that for a novel you're spending months just on the revision, chapter, uh, chapter after chapter mm. after chapter, of going carefully through. Before but you've even put it to a publisher? Before it's even gone to a publisher, definitely. Mm. Um, I think that's one thing that, that quite a lot of people don't realise, is, is that the first draft is really just like having the fabric ready to begin your a garment. Uh, and then there's the, the cutting and the shaping and the embossing and the embroidery and the glossing, and that goes on and on and on. Um, again, it's something that in writing classes, some people will say, you know, I've finished my story. And I say, well, actually, you've started your story. Now you've got the basis and now you've got to shape it and go over and over and get rid of the irregularities and so forth. And so the editing process, the personal editing process, is quite a long one. And then, of course, you, if, if you're fortunate, you have a good editor um, as, uh, associated with, the, uh, with the, the publishing company who comes in at the next stage and gives you further advice and encouragement. We'll look at just the membership of the New Zealand Society of Authors. And they came back with the date of 1983. Would that sound about mm -hmm. right? Probably was, yes. And was that becoming mm. a member of the Southland branch, uh, the would have been based probably, in Dunedin? Probably would have, yeah. Yes, 80. Do you it remember? Do now, you, now I'm a member of the Canterbury branch, but right. I probably was there, the Dunedin branch, then, living in North Otago. Mm. Do you remember the first meeting? No, I don't. <laughs> Sorry. So well, no, as, as I no mentioned, one notable at it. No, well, as I mentioned to you before, because living in Omaru and Timaru, they don't have branch meetings in those places, they're in Dunedin and Christchurch. So 
really my my membership was largely run at that stage of, of correspondence and I very rarely went to meetings. I did go to a couple when I was on the Burns Fellowship, I remember in Dunedin, and I remember thinking they were not very well attended then. It wasn't a very um, vigorous um, mm. uh, branch at that stage. I hope it's better now. There were some very loyal members, and occasionally I've been to um, the one in Christchurch. But most of my association has been in, in activities organised by uh, New Zealand Society of Authors. Uh, the mentoring programme, for example, um, some judging of competitions, and more recently workshops, particularly those organised in, in Christchurch. Um, so that's my main connection. Mm. And uh, as I say, I was um, privileged to be there, um, honorary Pres pres president of honour mm. a few years ago. 2007-2008. Yes, and you gave the Janet Frame Memorial Lecture in oh. 2007. <clears throat> do you, what do you think of the organisation, as, as, as its effectiveness as an advocate for writers? I think it's a very important organisation. As we mentioned before, often writing can be a, a solitary, selfish, rather lonely uh, occupation. And I think to have a sense that of, of collegiality, that there are other people out there uh, supporting you and, and going through the same sort of thing, I think that's uh, very valuable. Mm. I haven't been caught up really in, in many of their issue uh, uh, areas, but mm. no, mm. I, th I think it's it's valuable organisation, particularly for, for people starting off. And one of the things that I like about it is that you don't actually have to be a published author to be a member, mm. do you? That's so right. So th this, I think, encourages people who are just starting off to take advantage of the, of the organisation. You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between author Owen Marshall and Deborah Shepherd. This was the last episode for Season 3 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. But make sure you don't miss an episode when we return by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and you will also be able to access all the past episodes. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu-Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.